Looking for a graduation gift to inform, inspire, and encourage? When you give a subscription to Christianity Today, you're giving redemptive, relevant news and thoughtful, balanced dialogue about the church, current issues, and public theology. Visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to get a discounted student subscription for the graduates in your life. Starting at only $2 per month, this gift will engage and grow their faith throughout the year. Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. One of my closest friends was in the aisle seat next to mine. And I remember holding her hand. Like, that's that's the last thing I remember doing. Looking into each other's eyes. I remember her eyes were just huge, glassy, and that's probably how mine looked too because we're just like, what is going on? And then she says, what do we do? What is this? What's happening? And then I hear myself say, like, I don't know, maybe we should pray. I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. And that's the last thing I said on that flight. That's the last thing I said to her, to anyone, the last words I uttered before this, like, metal scraping, really like nails on chalkboard sound, just like kind of filled my head. And then it was just darkness. This is Where You're From, a podcast for those who believe it's important to stop and listen before we speak. Join us as we ask another Christian thought leader where you're from and discover how their life experiences and expertise, even if we may disagree with something they say, offer us an important perspective that's worth thinking about. Welcome to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. Life is full of ups and downs, and sometimes the downs change us in surprising ways. We start to ask ourselves questions about who we are and what things we value the most. The answers we give to these difficult questions can change the entire course of our lives, for better or for worse. Today, I'm talking with someone who faced these difficult questions after experiencing an unimaginable trauma at the age of 16. Kechi Okuchi is a Nigerian-American recording artist and motivational speaker, but she is also one of only two survivors of the Sosaliso Airlines Flight 1145 crash on December 10th, 2005. To find out how she overcame this traumatic event, join me as I ask Kechi Okuchi, where you're from? I'm from Nigeria, born and raised. Yes. Okay, nice. And I just discovered in Ancestry that I'm 26% Nigerian. Yes. So I, does that mean like we can claim each other's I family? Mean, there's no. like probably blood in there somewhere. <laughs> Definitely. You're Nigerian now. That's it. That's all it takes. <laughs> I love it. Niger for life. <laughs> <laughs> you even know the phrase. Look at you. Yes. Niger yes. for life. Period. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the circumstances of you growing up. Growing up in Nigeria, I had a really great childhood personally. I was an only child for 10 years before my sister was born. So I was quite spoiled by my parents. <laughs> we didn't have a lot, you know, we're very middle class, but like they never made me feel like I was lacking anything, you know, and I was also kind of brought up in this very family oriented kind of environment. So my extended family was a big part of my life growing up. It was just fun. It was fun. I never mm. felt alone. I felt like I always had people around me that I loved and loved me back. Mm. It was a good childhood. <laughs> That's great. And where in Nigeria are you from? I'm from the East. So I'm Igbo. Okay. It's called Imo States and kind of built our lives there before I started high school. Gotcha. And what did your parents do? My dad owned a paint manufacturing company, hmm. like making commercial paint. And then my mom, first of all, her passion is baking. So she did that for quite a while while I was a kid. But then she also was general manager at a bank. Got it. Yeah. Let us know what Nigerians in Nigerian culture is like. Nigerians are very proud. I would say that that's one thing. Very culture driven, very traditional a lot of times to a fault, mm. I would say very religion driven as well, because mm. there's a difference between religion and, you know, faith. Mm. I don't tie those two things together necessarily. But in general, we're also very viciously loving people, protective, very supportive of our own, especially when it's good things. We don't get a lot of good versus bad, you know, like the ratio is usually quite skewered. So when we get good, we are like, we're all in, like we're mm. so happy to celebrate it. Okay. And how would you say that aspect of Nigerian culture has shaped you and your personality? I think there's a lot of sifting that happens, taking the good out of the bad. And that's pretty much how I grew up, I think. You know, I was lucky enough to be born to 
two wonderful human beings. Mm. So I feel like there was what I had at home versus what I knew about like Nigeria out there. Then what I had with my family and then what I had with my friends. And so there's just a lot of like sifting, understanding that there's bad out there, but not wanting to bring that into yourself or into your Mm. home. I would say also that I was more on the privileged side in terms of sheltering, you know, protecting Mm. from like the bad stuff. So I knew of the bad things that were happening around me in Nigeria, but I was rarely ever involved in them because of my childhood, my shielding from my parents. Yeah, we had uh, Wande from Reach Records on earlier. She's also Nigerian. Yeah, yeah. And she kind of mentioned that oftentimes the culture can be pretty strict. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that you describe your parents, Mm. that doesn't sound like a typical approach. So did you notice that growing up? Oh, yeah. I noticed it growing up. Like, even as I became an adult, having conversations with people I meet, they don't understand my childhood, Mm. (laughs) even my close friends. But, you know, it wasn't like my parents were lax. Their approach was just very, I guess, open, gave me more freedom to actually ask questions. And I know that that's not the case for a lot of Nigerians. Gotcha. So tell me, what is your whole name and what does it mean? My name is actually Kechi, like on my birth certificate, but I was named after my aunt who is named Inkechi. That means God's own. Mm. Inke is like ownership. Mm. Chi is the Igbo name for God. So mm-hmm. Inkechi Adobi, that's my middle name. The first daughter of Obi. So my dad's middle name is Obi. So that's what that is. And then my last name is Okuchi, which is God's word. Oku is word. Chi mm. again, God. So God's word. Wow. God's own and God's word. So you mentioned earlier that there's a difference between religion and faith. Yeah. When did that become personal for you and how you embrace that difference? Definitely became more personal for me after the accident happened. This was during the phase of my life where I went on my own personal search for who God was going to be to me versus who he had been so far based on my parents' faith. Mm. You know, I grew up Christian because my parents and my family were Christian and believers. Did I have anything personal with God at that point? No. You know, I did what I had to do based on the fact that this is what we believed. The pursuit of something personal, that started after the accident. When I got to a place where I understood very keenly by my circumstance that Mm -hmm. I could not rely completely, number one, on other people's faith to carry me, Mm -hmm. other people's prayers to carry me, Mm -hmm. and medication. There was just something missing. And I started feeling like I might find it if I search for my own personal thing with God. Okay. And I'm going to get to that, but Mm. I want to hear a little bit of this backstory some more of how you would have described yourself prior to this pivotal moment. Mm. My personality was at its most like whole right before the accident. You know, I was 16 years old. So I was definitely very, I want to say vain. Mm -hmm. I was very pretty and I was very aware of it. And so I liked looking good. I liked feeling good. But, you know, my confidence about how I looked, it was mostly formed before I even got to high school because of my parents and how they made me feel about myself. You know, so that gave me like this confidence that I felt like no one can tell me anything because my parents said this and that kind of thing. And then about my personality, I really liked the fact that I was mostly an optimistic person. I felt like my perspective on life was typically to find the good stuff out of the bad stuff, you know, find a reason to be happy, even in a bad situation. And my circle of friends was small. I was friendly to everyone, but I didn't feel the need to be liked by everyone. Definitely didn't take school seriously enough. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't apply myself more than I needed to during that phase of my life anyway. So what did 16 year old catchy do for fun sing a lot (laughs) i loved singing like i would sing happily to people around me i also loved to read avid reader fiction i consumed books my mom's an avid reader and that's definitely where i got it from Mm. but also because like in nigeria it's really hot like all the time (laughs) as much as you want to play outside and all that like it's not really that fun so i mean you find things to do inside so reading was a main thing for me and also video games i loved video games still do can't play it as often now, unfortunately, but I absolutely love that. Oh, foods, definitely food. Mm. I love trying different kinds of cuisine. That also is something that's uh, the same now. Nice, nice. So, I mean, some of that food I'm, I'm guessing included jollof rice, right? Look at you. Yes. <laughs> yes. Jollof rice, arguably one of the most popular Nigerian meals, I would say, worldwide. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now you, you mentioned you were a senior at 16. Correct. Yes. That seems young. Right. That's because in Nigeria, we do start school much earlier, I would say, than y'all do here in America. Mm -hmm. But then another thing is like high school is grouped together. Grade 7 to 12 is one school essentially. And usually it's a boarding school scenario. So from ages 10 to 16, I was in the same 
boarding school with the same group of students. You know, that was my high school experience. Wow. That's something else we have in common. I went to boarding school, too. Yeah. Yeah. From fourth grade to 12th grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, it was a very incredible experience. And there's a type of closeness that you have with your fellow classmates that they're like brothers and sisters. Literally. Okay. So you are there and then you're about to take this trip. Tell us about where you were going and where was your mind Mm. that day? So this was a Saturday, December 10th, 2005. It was Christmas time and we were heading home for Christmas. And for me, that meant studying because SATs were the next semester. Mm -hmm. And so for everyone in my grade, that's pretty much what that break was going to be. So that was pretty much where my mind was. I wasn't thinking of anything but that, you know, just because it was weighing on me. I remember it was a very normal day, at least. I mean, that's what I remember. It was a very regular day, nothing strange. And like, I remember we boarded the school bus because the bus would take us from campus to the airport. And also at this point, like, it's important to note that like flying wasn't anything strange or new to any of us. This was like a regular routine trip that we make. You know, my school was in the northern part of Nigeria. And students from all over Nigeria came to that school. So most of us flew. It was just a regular, you know, routine trip going home as we always do. And then we would come back when the semester started. So I remember we boarded the plane. And usually the trip is about an hour maybe. And we took off. Everything was fine. Flight was normal. There were 109 people on board. 61 of them were students, including myself. So 61 of us from my school. And then everyone else, you know, including the flight crew, made 109. So I remember everything was fine for the most part. It was when the descent into the airport started, like when the pilot made that announcement, that the turbulence started. And again, that wasn't anything. Turbulence happens with flights. It's not a big deal. So at first, no one thought anything of it. But then as time passed, it just kept getting worse and worse. And I remember just feeling this tension in the air that was just like, no one wants to think the worst, but like it was definitely on everyone's minds. And no one wanted to say a thing. No one wanted to say anything because we're just like, it can't actually happen. Like, whatever we're thinking, like, the worst doesn't typically happen. Like, no one boards the plane thinking the worst is going to happen. And the, the stats are so low for that mm. kind of thing to happen. So we were just quiet. And then, like, there was this scream from the back of the plane. That's when the panic started. People started screaming prayers, screaming God's name. I was in an aisle seat close to the front of the plane. I was just sitting there in, in shock and confusion because... What was actually happening? Like, it was like a movie. One of my closest friends was in the aisle seat next to mine. And I remember holding her hand. Like, that's that's the last thing I remember doing. Looking into each other's eyes. I remember her eyes were just huge, glassy. And that's probably how mine looked too. Because we're just like, what is going on? And then she says, what do we do? What is this? What's happening? And then I hear myself say, like, I don't know. Maybe we should pray. I don't know what. I don't know what's going on. And... That's the last thing I said on that flight. That's the last thing I said to her, to anyone, last words I uttered before this like metal scraping, really like nails on chalkboard sound just like kind of filled my head. And then it was just darkness. And then I was opening my eyes and five weeks had passed and I was in the hospital in South Africa waking up from a coma. And that was like when my new life, I suppose, started. Wow. So like you said, it was a regular routine day going from northern Nigeria to these for Christmas mm-hmm. break. For Christmas. And that shriek from the back of the plane is kind of what breaks the tension and yeah. causes everyone to realize this is not normal. Yep. She was like, is this plane trying to land? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't see out the window, not just because I was in the aisle seat, but like it was just gray. So like from my perspective, mm-hmm. there was nothing outside. Like I couldn't see anything. And I suppose that makes sense because later on when they told me details about the accident, we apparently crashed during a thunderstorm. Like it was a really bad storm. Mm-hmm. And like the issue was because the power had tried to land in like extremely bad weather conditions. So mm-hmm. that was what caused the crash. So I just keep thinking the woman that screamed must have been like in the window seat and she could see what was happening, you know? Mm. And I just, Mm. I just know that would have probably made things even worse because it was one thing to have the physical injuries, but then the Mm. psychological would be so much worse, I think. Mm. So you hold your friend's hand next to you looking at each other's eyes and Mm. then say a prayer, blackout, and you say you wake up five weeks later. Mm -hmm. Like when you open your eyes Do you realize how much time has passed? When I open my eyes, I have no clue how much time has passed, but I know where I am. I know what happened. Okay. So how are you feeling at that point? That beginning time was very 
cloudy, very misty. It was kind of like the combination of like reality and dreams. I wasn't quite mm. aware of what was going on and, and couldn't quite distinguish dream from reality at that yeah. point. Everything was just very floaty and my body was very numb. So I remember opening my eyes and just feeling I was here, but not quite. I knew my mom was next to me. And that was always something that grounded me, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, having her next to me was always a reason to open my eyes again. Okay. So you open your eyes at five weeks mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. how much longer does it take for you to actually engage in conversation and, and start to understand mm. what actually happened? When it comes to understanding what had happened, I opened my eyes knowing because while I was in the coma, my mom would talk to me and I would hear her. She would say, Catchy, you know, you were on your way back from school and you were in an accident, the plane crashed and you were really badly hurt, but you're in South Africa right now and you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. You know, she didn't want me to wake up like in a panic, you know, and that mm -hmm. is a thing that happens with trauma patients. Sometimes they wake up, their body's still reacting to the traumatic experience. I give my mom all the credit for the fact that I opened my eyes, knowing what happened, knowing where I was. That was definitely a blessing. But then when it comes to like an understanding of just how bad things were, my injuries, how long I was going to be here, how long I'd been here already. That came over time, the next few months in the burn ICU in the hospital I was in. I had a trachea tube in my throat, so I couldn't actually see anything. I couldn't speak. That happened about three months into my treatment where they took out the tube and I could finally like, you know, use my voice to speak. So after mm. I got better and my voice came back, I started like talking way more with her. And the more I was awake, the better I got, the more I could move around and look around and see myself. And I could see just how bad the damage was. Mm -hmm. So as time passed and I got better, I got worse like mentally because the better I got, the more aware I was of the fact that this was going to be a very long journey. And like the life that I knew was not one that I should be looking forward to going back to. There was no going back. Things like prom, mm -hmm. graduation, mm -hmm. those were like... Normalcy, mm. what I defined as normal was very far. So that took a lot of adapting for sure. I can only imagine. And you mentioned there were 109 on board. Mm -hmm. What was the result after yeah. the accident? There were two survivors. So myself and another woman who I didn't know prior to the accident, who I know now, you know, we're good friends now. We were the only two survivors. So all the other kids that were mm. on the plane were gone. Even the one that you held? Even my friend. How did you process that? That was uh, definitely the hardest part of everything. They told me the truth about that four months in. They had to wait for some time to make sure I would be psychologically capable to handle the gravity of the truth. The main thing was the shock in the beginning, just because I had assumed for the last four months that if I was alive, so was everyone else. People don't just survive plane crashes. So if anyone survives... That means it just isn't that bad. That means like if one person survives, then everyone survives. Mm. So that was my perspective on it before mm. being told. So hearing the truth was extremely shocking. And so at that point, they showed me pictures. And when I saw the plane, I was just so shocked even more because I didn't understand like how two people survived that or came out of that. So there was that acknowledgement of the fact that this was a miracle for anyone to survive. But then there was also the acknowledgement of the fact that this was a huge tragedy. Mm. So many people were gone. So many children were gone. And this was something that was very hard for me to digest, especially when it came to God, who I was just now learning so much about. Mm. And now I was here trying to kind of understand how this person, this being that is supposed to be all loving and all knowing and all powerful would allow something so tragic to happen. That confused me a lot too. So these were all the different things I was thinking at that time, just receiving the news and all that confusion and all that shock, everything just kind of spiraled me into this depressed place. You know, I was just inconsolable mm. and I just felt like he had been so unfair to not allow everyone else to survive. Like why just one person out of all those kids? Why just two people out of all those people, you know? If he could save two lives, he could save 107. It made no sense to me, you know? Mm. So I struggled with that a lot, I have to say. I did. So how did you make sense of all that? It was not easy. It was a perspective change for me that was initiated by my mom. In my experience in the hospital as a burn patient, I had been relying almost exclusively on my mom's faith, my mom's belief that I'll be okay, my mom's perspective on God, on Jesus, on faith, my mom's prayers. 
I believed enough in what she believed in mm-hmm. to believe that I would be okay. So it was this derived kind of faith that was not quite mine, but was strong enough to make me believe in what she believed in. Mm-hmm. And so everything I knew about him was from her. And she never approached things like she knew everything. It was clear she was also learning too. So I think another reason why I was spurred to pursue my own understanding of God was because she made it look so good. She made it look so desirable. I wanted to see him the way she saw him. And so the conversations that we would have was always her trying to make me understand that being a Christian does not exempt you from bad things happening to you. Bad things happen in life to good and bad people. And so being a Christian, being a believer, what sets you apart is a place to go to when bad things happen. So it was kind of like understanding what God represents, who he is, a place of solace. He is a place of endless replenishment and strength, especially when things are really bad. Mm. And he's an infinite source of that. So me getting everything I was getting from her was also another thing that was on the right path, but not quite there because she draws from him, you know? Mm. So at some point that middleman has to disappear so you can have access to that infinite source. She made me see God in this way where he's not causing bad things to happen, but he's the place that I go to, to comfort me and strengthen me when bad things do happen. And I think that made all the difference in seeing him that way. Mm, That's beautiful. So I'm curious about the questions that you raised though. Like why would God allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. Or if he has ability to stop it, like that doesn't get answered through the acceptance of him Mm -hmm. being a place of solace. Mm. So how did you resolve that part of the question? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was really just understanding that perspective on him being where you go when things go bad, help me detach him from the blame part of it of like saying he caused this. Mm. It was therapeutic. Just listening to my mom read from the word, Mm -hmm. the words were just comforting and they felt full of life and made me just feel better. And, you know, that's the main reason I started to ask her questions, because I craved Mm -hmm. that. I craved something in there that had a more long-lasting effect. That's beautiful. And it just reminds me of Philippians chapter 4, right? There's a peace that passes all all understanding that will guard your heart and mind. And it sounds like that's what you were tapping into through your mom's words. Mm -hmm. I'm curious also about your dad. Yeah, yeah. So I was in South Africa for treatment just because Nigeria didn't have the medical capacity to like handle my burns. I had third degree burns over 65% of my body. So everything from Mm. top to bottom burns through almost to the bone in some areas. So South Africa was the closest place where they could send me before I literally died. And Mm. this involved a lot of flying for anyone that came to visit, essentially, that didn't live in South Africa. My mom Mm. was the one that was there. She never left. She was there with me from the start. My sister had Mm. school and then my dad had work. So he came as often as he could. And when he did come, he'd stay for months on end. Mm. And uh, my mom needed that too, because, you know, I was just pulling so much out of her, you know? But yeah, so that was my dad. It's interesting because I hear about how he would break down and feel a type of way, like, but never when he was with me, ever. He would always just be himself around Mm -hmm. me. And for me, it gave me a sense of like normalcy, seeing that he was like still the same old guy, the way he would act, making the same jokes. I remember (laughs) my mom said that she got a phone call from some random person asking if she was Ijama Okuchi and that she needs to come to the hospital that's near the airport ASAP because her daughter was asking for her. So she started heading over there. She called my dad. And he told her, don't wait for me. Just go there first and see her and see what they're saying. And I'll meet you there. And so when she got there and she saw me and the doctors were working on me and trying to just get me to calm down, she called my name and I calmed down. They were finally able to do what they needed to do. And then my dad got there eventually. And then my dad had told her, you know, Ketchy is literally living for you right now. Like, do you know that? I believe that that's why she's alive, essentially. And so he knew that if there was any way I was going to come through this, that it was going to have to be with her next to me. Because literally Mm. she represented calm and love and peace and comfort and everything that God Mm. should represent for us, she did for me, you know? Wow. Uh, That's beautiful and just incredibly moving. And so you go through this dark period of questioning and Mm -hmm. then mention like a few months in, you start to get the gravity of how long of a recovery that you're going to have. And I can't help but think about 
you described yourself as 16 years old as vain mm-hmm. and appreciative of your like physical appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. 65% of your body with mm-hmm. third degree burns. Yep. How did you think about <laughs> that new reality? Mm. So curiosity about how I looked. Yes, that came the better I got. So, you know, from just looking at my body, I could tell that my face is probably not looking great either. Mm. So this was about four months in. So the day before I saw my reflection, I had spoken to my dad on the phone. And when my mom took the phone away from me, I had glimpsed my eyes. I didn't see enough to really see anything per se, but I saw enough to be curious of the rest of it, essentially, where it was like, huh. I just realized I haven't actually seen myself since this whole thing happened. So I told my mom, I want to see how my face is. And I remember she was just hesitant, you know? Mm. And then she was like, okay, yeah, I'll bring a mirror for you tomorrow. I felt like I needed to know now how I looked and decide how that was going to affect me. Mm. You know, aside from my physical appearance, there were things I liked about my intrinsic qualities. (laughs) I liked that I was chill, laid back. I liked that I was always more happy than not. There were things about me that I did kind of hope would stay with me forever. But then at that point in my life, I felt like my physical appearance informed a lot of my personality. I felt like I was the way I was just because I looked good. And so if that was taken away from me, what other things would change? So the next day she brought the mirror and I looked into my reflection for the first time since the accident. And I remember just thinking, wow, everything just looks so pink and red. And this was literally because I had no skin on my face. Mm. And it was just so weird to see this reflection that looked nothing like me. This didn't look like catchy. But the interesting thing that happened in that moment was, even though I didn't look like what I remembered catchy to look like, in that moment, There was still something extremely familiar about that reflection. And I feel like it was in my eyes. It doesn't look like catchy, but I mean, just the essence of it feels familiar. It feels like me. This was something that was born literally in that moment where I realized, okay, so if I still feel like me when I don't look like me anymore, then that obviously means that these things that have nothing to do with my physical appearance that I like about me or don't like my flaws, whatever it is, they really don't have anything to do with my physical appearance. These are things that Mm. are there or they're not there regardless of how you look. And I think in that moment, there was just this freedom that was born because it was like, I don't have to change then. I don't have to be a different person. Okay. So I look different, but like, it's not like I need to like start acting different, stop laughing so much, stop joking around. Like I, I can keep like liking the things I like. And, you know, laughing at things I like to laugh at, I have the same sense of humor. It just meant like nothing had to change. And to me, that was the most significant shift in my way of thinking because it literally became the foundation of how I approach life moving forward. And I have to also say, special mention, like this is not something that happened in a vacuum, like with just catchy coming to this epiphany. The people around me and how they had reacted to me thus far also informed that too. The focus had always been, how is she feeling? Is she getting better? How is she healing? No one had said or expressed anything, at least to me, about my appearance. My little sister that was six years old, this is a kid, a baby. And when she first saw me, she called me my name. She hugged me. She didn't ask, like, who is this? There was no weird reaction. I feel like, so I've been looking like this all along and like everyone has just been acting like normal. And then as time passed, it was just like that. So I have to say like my friends, my family, they just never made me feel a type of way about this. And since they are the most important people to me and have always been, their opinions trumped anyone else's. Again, it's just such a powerful story. And your response, what you said the Lord gave you, reminds me of when Samuel goes to look and anoint the next king after Saul. Yeah. And he looks at David, who's the youngest one mm-hmm. and the small one. Yeah. He's like, I can't be it. And the Lord says, no. <laughs> no, that's it. You know, man looks at the outside. Yeah. But the Lord looks at the heart. This is so true. I feel like bringing God into it, was another thing that helped reinforce it because then it became a matter of finding what to tie my identity to. And for me, learning everything about God and learning about how he loves us regardless, he made us and he cares about how we behave to other people and how we act in this world, what kind of footprint we live as opposed to how we look. He's not going to pick and choose between scarred versus unscarred when people are coming Mm. into heaven or coming to meet him. So to him, it also doesn't really matter what you look like on the outside. And Seen as he's the infinite source of 
everything good, seeing myself through his eyes is probably the best way to like hold on to my confidence. You're never going to be able to come to me to make me feel bad based on my appearance because God doesn't care about that. And like, I'm sorry, but you're not as important <laughs> as God. You're not God. Right. So it became that kind of thinking. Mm. There are many other things you can come for me on, but not on how I look because that's something that he already took care of. Through the faith and love of her family, Keshi was able to see past her physical appearance after the crash to her real self in light of who God is. This change of perspective gave her the courage not only for a big move, but also prepared her to be judged by Simon Cowell on America's Got Talent and millions of viewers around the world. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? ChurchLawAndTax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join ChurchLawAndTax.com today. Thank you so much for listening to Where You're From. Before we jump back into our conversation with Kechi Akwuchi, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next guest, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. This is where you're from. I called my Aunt Linda, and when I heard her voice, I just started wailing. I just started wailing because I know this is someone who loves me and someone who wants what's best for me. And the only thing I could get out my mouth, Rasul, between tears was they don't want me here. Welcome back to Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And in just a moment, we'll jump back into our conversation with Kechi Okuchi. But before we do, just a quick reminder that the show notes are available in the podcast description. They not only contain the talking points for today's show, but some links to learn more about Kechi's music and advocacy work. You can find these links in the show notes or by visiting whereyou'refrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from.org. Now let's get back into our conversation with Ketchy on where you're from. So you've mentioned the fact that you kind of needed this to prepare yourself for life outside mm-hmm. of the hospital in the world. So tell us about that. How long were you in the hospital? Mm. And then what was it like when you had to leave? So I was there for four months in the trauma ICU and then three months in the ward, the burn ward. Then I left South Africa Came back to Nigeria because I came back in August 2006 to about March 2007. March 2007 is when I moved to America with my family, my dad, my mom, my sister. We moved here primarily to get burn care from Shriners Hospital for Children. Mm. So Shriners is a burns hospital. They take care of kids with burns from all over the world, regardless of their ability to pay. They will handle Mm. everything. They don't care. Their burn hospital was in Galveston, Texas. So we moved to Galveston. That was the beginning of a different kind of life with these burns. South Africa is where they saved my life. That's where they brought me back from the dead, literally, and Mm. patched me back together. And America was going to be where they gave me back my independence. So I got here. The surgeries were life-changing. You know, they gave me back everything from being able to walk properly, to hold things, to move around, you know, more comfortably in my own skin that was literally fighting against me. Wait, hold on. What do you mean your skin was fighting against you? So third degree burns, what they do to the skin is so severe in terms of how much damage it causes. The skin loses its elasticity. It covers you, but it's no longer the same kind of skin that you 
are used to having. It's no longer like soft and pliable. Right. So as you heal from burn injuries that intense, the skin uses the shortest route it can to mend itself together. And oftentimes it does that and tightens the body like severely. So what happened oh. was my scars as they healed, especially at the joints, they would kind of fuse. So when I came here, like literally I couldn't straighten my arm. The skin had kind of like melded together to heal itself. Mm. So those are the kind of surges that Shrine was focused on. You know, like you just start appreciating all these things that are just living, you know, like being able to walk properly, heal first, being able to do this wrist motion, which I did not have access to for a long time. Even being able to like grip stuff, like my fingers were like fused into each other and they had to break the bones open and then fuse them into like positions that would actually be functional. So it's things like that, that trainers did for me and gave me back the movement that I needed to live a normal life as normal as possible. Mm. Anyway, that's my transition from hospital living to real world living started here in America. Yeah. And there's this other incredible transition we can't not talk about, which is you <laughs> went from one continent to another. True. So, you know, as a team, what was that like for you? So America was kind of like a very gradual adaptation process for me. I was still in this protected environment with my family in Got both it. continents. The weather was definitely not as warm as Nigeria. <laughs> that was great. Especially Galveston that's like so windy. And, you know, having these burns, my body can't regulate heat like normal anymore too. So that was another thing. But like, yeah, it was, it wasn't, a, it wasn't the worst transition, I think. Okay. So when did you start singing again? That was something that I never really stopped. After the accident happened, the first time that I sang in South Africa, was interesting because my voice changed actually hmm. because of the accident. There's no medical explanation for it. I loved singing before. I sang a lot and my voice was okay. It was good, but definitely different after the accident. It got a different quality to it that just made it better. And so that was something that happened that no one could really explain, but like being able to sing more confidently, it just made me happy. So I loved expressing myself that way. And it became a part of my therapy quite literally after I moved to America. So they put me into music therapy along with physical therapy. And it was the best thing they could have done for me in the hospital because music just did something inside me that medication couldn't really do or surgery. It just kind of healed me in, in a different way. Mm. The other kids that were in the hospital we would do like concerts and stuff. It was a really great way to express myself, like cathartic almost really. Wow. And who were some of your favorite singers? Ooh. Destiny's <laughs> Child, grew up with them, Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, Dido, Tracy Chapman. All the classics. The classics. My dad especially, his music tastes greatly informed mine. Okay, so you experienced this healing through music mm -hmm. and through song with an even better voice <laughs> than previous. So when do you decide, hey, let me see what I can do with this in a public mm. way where I'm not just singing, laying on my back, but I'm actually yes. sharing this with, with the, the world. world. That was in 2015. After I graduated with my bachelor's, I decided to join my church worship team. That was my first venture outside of my bedroom, my house. So it was like, okay, do something else with your voice catching. So I joined my church worship team. And for me, that was the biggest step outside of my comfort zone that I could possibly have made because putting myself out there in that way was just very scary. You know, my family says my voice is great, but you know, they're my family and you know, my friends too. <laughs> so it's not like I don't believe them. It's just, you know, it's hard to deny that there might be some bias there, you know? So singing for strangers was a whole different thing. So I just felt like, you know what, if that's going to be the case, you might as well sing for God where at least you know it's in a place where no one would judge you. <laughs> this is a supposed to be a judgment-free zone. That's what churches, right? So Yes. <laughs> they at least give you a, that's all right, exactly. baby. Sing for They'll the Lord. They'll encourage you. <laughs> exactly. So it was nice when I got a good reaction from the worship leaders they're like oh my okay girl you can sing I was like okay well I thank God thank God you think so so, so even then though I was in a very background singer capacity kind of thing you know where I just do harmonies the idea of leading was just like completely foreign and scary to me and I would say <laughs> my worship team leaders they're cool people they're a couple and they very gently put me out to be like kind of leading you know worship in some ways too so just little by little they definitely made me feel more confident too in putting myself out there and really expressing you know myself to God okay so you're singing at church mm -hmm. and then where does it decide to go to another level? Yeah. So yeah, I, I didn't make that choice myself. That was one of my best friends. <laughs> she just kind of signed me up without telling me. Sign you up to what? America's Got Talent. <laughs> yeah. She single-handedly changed my life. So before joining the church worship team, one thing I used to do was I would record covers 
and like mm-hmm. sent like my loved ones. I was sent like my friends, mm-hmm. my family, and she was always a friend that would be like, "This is great, but like you know, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, you need to submit this somewhere. Send this to these people. Stop sending this thing to me." <laughs> so one day, and this was 2016, she just kind of called me. I was like, "Look." You just never know. Anything can happen. This is just a thing I did. And I put my email. So, like, if anything happens, if they reject you, you wouldn't even see the email. Like, I will literally be the one to get the email. Like, you don't even have to care. You don't even have to see anything. I was like, okay, whatever. It's cool. Okay, it's done. So, we move. We move. It's fine. And then, like, November 2016, one weekend, Saturday, is when I got a phone call from this woman whose name was Destiny. And she was a talent scout for America's Got Talent. And she saw my application. And I remember just being like... I'm sorry, what? What you, what do you mean? Like, she was like, yeah, that we saw your application. I was like, okay, um, cool. She was like, okay, yeah, yeah. So we'd be in touch. I was like, okay. And then like a few minutes after that, I tell my parents and my sister, they're like, what? When did you even sign? I was like, I didn't sign up for this. I don't even know. And then like my friend calls me like later that day and is like, um, why am I getting an email from America's Got Talent saying that they were happy to talk to you today? <laughs> so throughout my time during the show, actually, she was getting all the emails and she would like forward the stuff to me whenever anything happened and they sent her anything for me. But yeah, she just took a step that I never would have taken in my life. I would have never done it myself. Mm. So I feel like God just kind of used her to take that first step that he knew I was not brave enough to take. Wow. So I'm just blown away by, okay, I survived one of two people in a plane crash in Nigeria, then I recover in South Africa, end up in Texas, and now I'm on America's Got Talent? Like, who wrote this script? Like, <laughs> like God is like, uh, just in the writer's room He's having just having a, a blast, day. right? Just, <laughs> when you put it that way, that it does sound kind of like what even is happening here? Like, how are we putting these pieces together? He really just be doing whatever he wants, and that's honestly, like, I think the best way to go about life is, like, having him yes. just do what he needs to do right so let's just go to that moment yes. you know that the world got a chance to see so you're on the stage in front of probably the most well-known curmudgeonly <laughs> critical person in simon cowell in the world and you have the courage to get up on there and sing after recovering from what you've recovered from after still enduring being re- fully restored mm. physically mm-hmm. in your appearance mm-hmm. in your body mm-hmm. What are you thinking as you're singing in front of Simon and this whole panel of judges and this whole audience? Before I got to that place where I was standing on that X right in front of them, I did not think I'd get that far. I was convinced that they would not put me on TV. I was like, there's no way this is actually going to happen. But let's just go through the motions and see what happens. You thought that because of the burns? Yeah, literally. Yeah, yeah. I don't see people like me. And not like in a self-deprecating way, just in a realistic way, like... You know, so by the time I got to that stage and stood there, I had not prepared for a situation where they would actually put me on that stage. So it was like I got there and I was like, what am I doing here? It was a very strange feeling of like, I can't believe I actually made it to this point. Mm. You know, the first time you stand there in front of judges is the first time seeing them. Mm. So that's a genuine, real reaction whenever you see people out there. I just realized in that moment, this is going to be the first time in my life that I am singing in front of people who are actually going to give me feedback on whether or not what my whole family has been telling me mm. is true. These are people who owe me nothing. They have no reason to make me feel good about myself. So they are going to tell me the truth. Mm. And this is make or break. I'm going to know for the first time how strangers actually hear me. Mm. So it was extremely scary. And I remember like when he was like, hello. And I was like, hi. I remember thinking in my head, like, why are you talking like that? Like, that's not your voice. (laughs) In that moment, just how I was feeling was so foreign. (laughs) I was so scared. I was like, wow, wow. Why did I let this happen? You know, but the relief I felt when I sang a few lines and then they started clapping along to my singing too. And I was like, this is actually happening right now. They're not stopping me. And so when I finished... And then I saw like all four judges standing and I got like four yeses. I was like, so I'm coming back here again. This is crazy. I cannot believe this is actually happening. It was just very cool to see a different perspective on my singing. I hadn't ever had that before. And then to have it be so overwhelmingly positive was definitely a very huge confidence booster in terms of my voice. That season, I realized how 
easily it was for me to be affected by what people say about my voice. I didn't realize it was a vulnerable part of me like that. And so I struggled with, am I here because of my story? Mm. Or is my voice actually the reason why I'm here too? Not America's got best stories, you know, it's about mm. talent. And I don't want to be here if it's someone else's spot just because my story is this and that. And of course, there were people who also felt the same way and would say that, you know, online. I learned very quickly not to read comments. I had this struggle too inside, like, why am I actually really here? Also, because in the first audition, even though he did give me a yes, everybody gave me like yeses, he did also say, you have a great voice. It's not the best voice I've ever heard, but you have a great voice and it makes me want to see you and see what else you can do. And that meant a lot to me even more because it was a very real response. So when he said in that second audition, I think in this moment that you've proven that you belong here with everyone else, not just because of your story, but because of your voice. And that's something I had never voiced as an issue for me, but I feel like he understood that that would be something that would be concerning for me. And that really made me feel so much relief and so much more confident that I actually had earned my spot here like everyone else. Simon on his own really encouraged me, I would say, and gave me this validation that I didn't even realize that I was looking for in, you know, someone like him that, you know, knew his stuff. As you were going through this, you mentioned that one, this appearance on the show changed your life. Mm -hmm. And then two, you were also wondering why God had you there. Once you experience the show and now in hindsight looking back why did god have you there i feel oh so many things the main thing was that if something is for you then he's gonna get you to that place if you let him even if the road might not be the path that you expect it to be and i feel like if you allow him he will lead you to a place where those passions can become part of your ambition part of what makes you happy, what you can pursue, maybe career-wise, or just whatever it is that makes you happy. I feel like he was trying to show me that these things that I love doing, like they don't have to just stay as things I love doing. I can actually do them, you know, and, and share them with the world. And I think that's such a God signature in my life. And then the second thing is about my story and the impact it can have to people out there in the world. I would never have had the chance to have this level of exposure or this platform on which to build this brand of hope and inspiration had I not ever been on that show. That is the main thing that AGT did was to give me that platform. It's always been something I felt was part of my life story, what I'm supposed to do with my life, to take what has happened to me and use it to motivate other people to understand that there is life to be lived after trauma, to embody that, to be that, and then in, from that place of experience, tell other people with conviction that this is the truth because I've lived it. And so that's something I was doing anyway, just in my small capacity. But the show made me able to do that to a bunch of people all over different platforms. Everything that I post is about showing my authenticity to the world and showing who I am to the world, whether it's me looking great one day, not looking great the other day, because I believe that that is something that we, people desperately need to see. And not just burn survivors, but just people in general. So that's something that I really have always wanted to represent. You don't have to allow your traumatic experience to cripple you. Yeah. And I think that that's really the main message that God wanted me to put out there for people, whatever avenue yeah. I decide to use. You mentioned earlier that you didn't think that they would put you on TV because you had not seen someone that looked like you on TV. Yes. I'm curious about that second point about the impact on other people. Mm -hmm. What have people told you? What have you heard about the impact of people who've had traumatic yeah. experiences mm -hmm. seeing you in that light? I think the most overwhelming thing is they feel inspired by my story, my experiences, to go for their dreams, to stop hiding from the world, to be more confident. Specifically with burn survivors, I think those are the ones that really make me feel like I'm doing something good and actually helpful with how I'm putting myself out there. When I hear from someone that says that they have this and that scar or this and that trauma, when I see that they relate to me and that seeing someone like me out there represent them makes them feel seen and makes them feel like they too can go out there and put themselves out there that's really it's the most encouraging thing because it tells me i'm at least on the path to do what i'm supposed to do so i think that's the most overwhelming response i get is from burn survivors or trauma survivors who appreciate the representation and the honesty and that it makes them 
want to kind of do that for themselves as well. Mm. Yeah, that's so inspiring. Is there a particular response that you've received that that really touched you and that helped you to see your impact on the world? Oh, there's so many. I just keep filtering them in my mind. But I think there was one that really stood out to me and it was this woman. I think she's Swedish. So first of all, there was also the fact that this was someone all the way in a whole different part of the world that I have very little knowledge of. She made this video on Instagram and it was like a six minute video of her explaining how she first saw me on EGT, how she found my videos on YouTube, how she's been following me on Facebook since I was in EGT. And she was talking about things that I had done and posted that she had been so aware of and that she just wanted me to know that the impact that I'm having on lives is more far reaching than I can ever understand that she's from Sweden and that as someone who has MS, that's multiple sclerosis, that she struggles a lot with putting herself out there into the world. But that when she sees me, whenever she sees anything I post, she just sees me out there, that it makes her feel that she can do anything. When I saw that video, I was so moved to tears because of the effort that she had put into getting in touch with me and saying these things to me. It was just so emotional and so moving that someone would go that far to send me this video message where she really wants me to know these things. And I always say this because it's the truth. It's these things. I can speak to a crowd of a thousand people and just that whole speech could have been just for one person in that crowd. And so if that one person is going home feeling the way that woman's feeling in that video, job done. I am out there to just see if something that I say or do impacts one person in some positive way, makes them feel good about themselves in some way or encouraged. I mean, that's the best. That I, I can't control how people receive my message, but I do hope that it is half the, like as much as what this woman that made this video is. Life is full of ups and downs. And in the face of trauma, Ketchy's perspective changed. By seeing herself through God's eyes, she had the courage to sing in front of millions of people and to become an inspiration for those who have gone through significant traumatic events. This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Daniel Ryan Day, Ryan Clevenger, and Jade Gustafson, and was engineered by Gabrielle Boward and Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Joyce and Crescentia for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.